From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It opened five years ago with the hope of inspiring a regional boom in innovation. So has the Patent and Trademark Office in Colorado lived up to its billing? Then a local plane crash survivor remembers pilot Al Haynes, the man considered a hero for his efforts to land Flight 232 when the hydraulics failed. Plus, as the state sets clean energy goals, a legacy of the past points to the pioneering spirit of Colorado. It was truly a next generation, even beyond next generation, kind of reactor design for its time. So why did the Fort St. Brain nuclear power plant near Platteville fail? And country music star Dirks Bentley brings his Labor Day music festival back to Colorado, his home away from home. No, don't take me that long when we're up this high. Don't you tell me goodbye until you ride. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. There were high hopes five years ago when the United States opened a patent and trademark office in Denver. Proponents said that it would spark a regional boom in innovation. But has it? That's the question today in Disruptors, our ongoing series about entrepreneurship in the state. joined by Molly Kachowski, the director of the Rocky Mountain Patent and Trademark Office. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Avery. People hoped this office would increase innovation in Colorado, but the number of patents received in Colorado last year was actually lower than in 2014. Was that a misguided premise? So I, I think if if the measure of innovation is only the number of patents that we're talking about, I think it is misguided. Um, I think we need to look at the entire innovation ecosphere. We need to look at whether or not we're stimulating areas that previously hadn't been in the patenting process. But there's all kinds of intellectual property. There's trademarks and copyrights and trade secrets. Um, and our goal at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is to make sure that people understand all of the forms of intellectual property and that they're taking advantage of those forms of intellectual property that make sense for their business. And to be honest, sometimes a patent just doesn't make sense for a business. Um, You know, especially in the global trade climate that we're in, sometimes a trademark or copyright is actually going to be a little bit more effective for you in terms of stopping competitors from foreign countries. So one of the things that we want people to be doing, though, um, as an entrepreneur or small business, is we want them making informed business decisions, right? You know, it's, it's not enough to just say, well, I don't think I need a patent. It's you need to be able to say, I know that a patent isn't right for me and my business at this point in time. So it's but I have these other forms of intellectual property that I am taking advantage of and that I am acquiring as an asset for my business so that down the road when you have an exit strategy, um, whether it's an acquisition or an IPO or, you know, just continuing your business for generations to come, you know what your intellectual store, your intellectual property story was and you know why you made those decisions and you can communicate that. There's also this element when we're talking about the patent office where patent applications, they're assigned randomly. So if you live in Colorado and apply for a patent, you're not likely to be assigned to the Denver office. You're right. We don't have a geographic, um, you know, kind of component to um, the assignment of patent applications. Um, patent applications are sent into central our central headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. They're assigned by technology, though. 
So, right, they get assigned to a technology center, and then that filters down to a particular art unit that has expertise in that area of technology. And then it gets assigned to a particular examiner based on workloads, some other types of things, perhaps their expertise in that technology. Um, and that's how it gets assigned. Now, we've had the we've had the lucky opportunity where um, a local examiner and a local applicant have been able to meet in person. Um, again, though, that was luck. Um, we're not in the process of looking at a geographic descriptor, though, for um, assigning patent applications just because our numbers don't make sense. The one thing that we don't want to do in, you know, like matching people up, matching applicants with examiners, we do not want to cause a greater backlog. And we don't have the numbers to handle even the applications that would come out of the 808. Yeah, 80202 zip code. (laughs) And how does having an office here help inventors? In lots of different ways. So number one, we provide resources at the office, right? Um, We provide education and outreach seminars like our Path to a Patent. Um, We provide opportunities for local IP practitioners to actually increase their skills. Um, You know, for example, the director of the office is coming here today for a luncheon this afternoon to talk about where the office is going and some of the policy things that are going on. So we do a lot of that kind of education and outreach, and we hope that people take advantage of us in that that way. Um, I loved Serena's comment yesterday. She's like, why not use them? They're there. That's we're here. Come see us. Um, we have a wealth of knowledge in the in the office, and we want to share that knowledge with you. So we have booklets and pamphlets. We have a public search room where you can search trademark applications and see if somebody has your mark before you. You can search patent applications to see if somebody has invented what you've come up with before you. And so, you know, we're there. Use us as that resource. We're also in other communities around, Den- or, well, around Colorado um, through our patent and trademark resource centers. So when I started as the director, we had one patent and trademark resource center in the entire state of Colorado. And that was right here at the Denver Public Library. Um, since then, we've added one in Durango to serve our southwesterns. Uh, Southwestern and Four Corners stakeholders. And then we added one in Grand Junction to serve those Western Slope and perhaps a few Utahans as well. And you mentioned Serena Rolf. She's an inventor that we spoke with yesterday on the show. You've been watching inventions come through the Rocky Mountain Patent Office for five years. What types of things have you seen? Do you have a favorite? So I kind of do. We have all kinds of inventions. We're the only regional office that has every single technology um, center represented. So I have an examiner who works on single-celled organisms. I have a number of examiners that work on solar cells. I have a number of examiners who work in artificial intelligence, who work in um, uh, graphic user displays um, and other types of LCD displays. Um, And then we have three uh, of our examiners who work in the firearms uh, technology, which is kind of cool. But when people bring samples to a federal building, that's not actually a good thing. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, One of the reasons the United States Patent Office wanted to open these regional offices, there are now four outside of D.C., was to reduce backlog. But the backlog continues to be quite high, and it takes about two years to get a patent. With the rate of change in technology these days, is that fast enough? Uh, we hope so. Um, you know, we, we've actually improved quite a bit. Um, when we started the office, um, the backlog was a bit higher, um, and it did take longer. Um, about that time, we were, I think, 36 months um, or closer to three years to getting issuance of a patent. Right now, I think we're at um, 
or by the end of this fiscal year, will be less than 15 months to first office action, less than 24 months to um, issuance or abandonment or final disposition on your patent application. So I think those are great um, strides that we've made. Um, I will tell you that the examiners that we hired in the Rocky Mountain office and just those that we hired in 2014 um, and since, they've been responsible for issuing 4,300 patents since 2014. And I am interesting and interested in that hiring because patent applications, almost by definition, they're on the cutting edge of technology. So it takes a skilled person with a science background to be a patent examiner. Um, and those are the people who decide whether an idea deserves to be a patent. So attracting those people to Denver is a key reason the office opened here. Um, one study predicted 500 employees in five years. And tell me how that's going. So we're not quite there yet. Um, <laughs> we, we are space constrained. Um, we have our offices in the Byron Rogers Federal Building. Um, and so, you know, we, we grow pretty slowly, um, but that's actually true of the United States Patent and Trademark Office as a whole. Um, we are the only fully user fee funded government agency. So um, we really work hard to run our agency like a business. So we make very, very careful decisions about hiring. Um, and so really, since 2014, we hired an initial round of about 115 examiners in 2014 and 2015. Um, because of space constraints, we had to take a break for a while, but we hired a class of 25 in 2018, and we hired a class of 17 in 2019. Um, but I think the thing that says the most about our office is the number of applicants that we had for those jobs. So for the 25 jobs in 2018, we had over 400 applicants. And for the 17 jobs that we had this year, we had over 300 applicants. That is absolutely astounding to me in a state that has a 2.6 unemployment rate, unemployment rate. So these jobs are in very high demand. I think so. Let's get back to Serena Rolf, who you mentioned earlier. I interviewed her yesterday on the show. She won a patent for a hood she invented. She's an African-American and a woman, and both groups that are dr drastically underrepresented in patent awards. What are you doing to improve that imbalance? So, you know, that's something that has seen a lot of attention, and it actually has Congress's attention as well. So Congress recently passed the Study of Underrepresented Classes Chasing Engineer and Science Act of 2018. I actually had to write that out because it's just we just call it the Success Act. Um, and we owe them a report on the Success Act um, in combination with SBA. We're looking at what that looks like. Our problem is, is that we don't collect demographic data. So we ask if you're a U.S. citizen. We ask for your address. And that's literally it. So any data that we try and gather about whether or not an inventor is a woman, a man, African-American, Asian-American, any other kind of eth ethnicity um, is, is kind of guesswork. So part and parcel of what we're trying to do is really build that data set. There might be some changes that come down um, in the future as a result of that. But um, look, we know that innovation at present is highly concentrated um, geographically, demographically, and economically. Um, there was a study by Bell. Um, it's called Who Becomes an Inventor in 2018. And he found that if women minorities and low-income children were to invent at the same rate as white men from high-income households, the number of inventors would quadruple. Wow. In today's global trade climate, when we're competing with the rest of the world and, you know, truly we're competing with a country that has over a billion people in it, we need every single brain on deck. 
Um, we need all of that innovation. We need all of that creativity to propel America forward. Um, director Yanku, who is the director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, um, believes that it's critical for Americans, especially in today's global trade climate, to broaden our innovation ecosphere geographically, demographically, and economically. And so the regional offices are in a prime position to help spur that innovation. And again, like one of the things that I took to heart yesterday that Serena said was, you know, the patent process is really intimidating. It's been around since 1790. It's been around since the birth of our country. Um, it's, it's not intuitive. But we're there to make it easier. And I actually want to hear that from Serena because she yeah. talked about that intimidation factor. So let's listen. Yeah. You hear USPTO and people are like, oh, that's big. That makes me nervous. And I would like to help people move through that process and understand that process so it isn't so big and scary. So people, they can see your office as a barrier. How would you respond to that? Oh, I don't want them to. Um, I think I'm probably the least intimidating person that you you will ever meet. And so <laughs> I really want people to to come to us, to use us to as that, that initial resource to educate themselves about intellectual property so that their conversations with their attorneys go that much faster, that much smoother, that they understand the business decisions that they're making. Um, I recognize. I, look, I'm a longtime Coloradoan. Um, I recognize that, you know, when I say I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help, um, that that might not be met with the same emotion that I want it to be met with. But it's true. Um, it really is true. Molly, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Molly Kachalski is director of the Rocky Mountain Patent and Trademark Office, which celebrates its five-year anniversary Friday. She spoke to us as part of our ongoing series on entrepreneurship, Disruptors. When you board a flight, how often do you even think about who's flying the plane, let alone build a lifelong relationship? Thirty years ago, a bond was formed between passengers and crew of United Airlines Flight 232, which left Denver's Stapleton Airport bound for Chicago, but instead crashed in Sioux City, Iowa, killing 112 people. 184 people survived. Here's Susan White, who was a flight attendant on board that day. Every day I'm reminded of it, not in a not in a morbid way, to, but always just to be grateful. A lot of good came from it, and yeah. we always think about all those that didn't make it. That was, you know, they're always in our, our prayers. The pilot of the flight, Al Haynes, died earlier this week. His work to land the plane made him a hero and a fixture in the lives of countless families and individuals. One of them is Jerry Schimmel who was a passenger on Flight 232. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. When you think of Al Haynes, what comes to mind? Hmm. Well, I think, first of all, just a good friend. You know, we have this common bond of surviving this plane crash, and obviously we had different roles in the plane. I, I didn't have any anything to do with it. Al did, Al did all the work in the front. But um, I think we become friends from, from a bond that we had as, as plane crash survivors, but just became close because we, we shared a lot of common interests. Uh, we both love baseball. He's a baseball. He was a baseball umpire and a PA announcer, and and we just shared a lot of uh, common interests. So I think the bond of being in the same plane that crashed in Sioux City, Iowa, brought us together. But I think just a, a friendship kept us together. And as we said, I think most people rarely give a second thought to who's piloting the flights that they're taking. In the aftermath of the crash, 
tell me a little bit more about how your relationship with Haynes evolved. Yeah, when I, I found out very quickly who he was, and, and, and it didn't take long for the public to realize what exactly happened with our crash and, and how it happened. And and uh, I, I kept hearing the story about how Captain Haynes and his, and his flight crew miraculously landed this plane. And I was intrigued by that, obviously, but I wanted to I wanted to meet the guy at some point that, that probably saved my life, or I certainly could make that claim. And so uh, I just... Uh, Waited for the opportunity, and a few months uh, later, he came to Denver, actually. That's where the flight originated, and a lot of people who survived the crash, and a lot of people who died, families uh, were in Denver and still are. We all got together a month or two after the crash, and, and were able to meet Captain Haynes. And I think the most impressive thing about him was his openness. He was just very, very honest about stuff. He, for a long time, was convinced that he uh, killed 112 people. And I think uh, us and his family, survivors, and even people of families of people who died convinced him otherwise, that he did all he could to save 184 people. And what did you appreciate most about him? I think his his vulnerability, he was open to anything. Any question you had about the crash, about what happened the cockpit, about the procedure he had, he was going to tell you the answer. And he never shied away from that. I, I kept thinking all these years, he, he could have just gone into you know seclusion because he retired a year after the crash. And, and he could have just this private life and not had done anything publicly. And then everybody would be okay with that and would have understood if he did that. But he didn't do that. He made himself vulnerable and open and, and always was able to answer questions and always had time for anybody who wanted to, to talk about the crash who had some connection to it. So I think his openness and his vulnerability was what I was really, really impressed with. And you talk about how he saved so many people. That's a different kind of pressure than batting with the bases loaded. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And I think about that a lot. And, and I I do a lot of motivational speaking. And I think, well, you think you have a tough time. Think about having 284 people behind you in a plane that's going to crash and, you, and you're responsible for that. So yeah, he, um, I think when you look back on it, uh, you see uh, miraculous things that happened. I mean, he told me that uh, the last time I talked to him, which is a couple of years ago in Seattle, that over 400 attempts have been made in a simulator to land a crippled DC-10 like we had, and no one's ever able to do it. So it, I, I think he chalks it up to luck and teamwork. I think the, you could probably put uh, uh, miraculous uh, happenings in there as well. And I think people may recognize your name and voice because you call the Colorado Rockies game on KO, games on KOA radio, and you've been doing that for about 10 years, flying with the team across the country throughout the season. Even 30 years later, is there still any hesitancy about flying so much? No, not hesitancy. Uh, I think about it. I, there, I don't think there's ever been a flight I've gotten on when I haven't thought about the crash or potential for another one, but there's not so much anxiety that I can't do it. And for me, that's just, that's a personal belief. That That's a belief that God has a perfect plan for me. And if he's going to have me crash in a plane again, he's going to do that. I'm not going to talk him out of that. So that takes the fear away from me. But I think about it. It's, it's there all the time, but not so much that I can't function with it. Do you find yourself drawn to pilots and crew on those flights? And have you developed relationships with any of them? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, everybody. I, I, you know, all the, everybody survived in that crew other than one flight attendant, and yeah, became close with all of them. Susan White, who I know has been on this show, is a good friend of mine, and and uh, some of the co-pilots' uh, families and I become close. So, yeah, it's a bond that that we found was pretty strong early on, and and it continued thirty years later. 
As we said, the past July marked the 30th anniversary of the crash. For a number of years now, you've done a memorial bike ride in honor of the flight, those who died, and the survivors. Tell me a little bit more about how that came to be and why it's so important to you. Uh, It's sort of my personal way of honoring the 112 people who died. Uh, And I've been doing it, I don't know, probably six or seven years now, I guess. And uh, every every July 19th, the anniversary of the crash, or some day right around there, some some July 19th, I have Rockies game, so I can't I can't ride, but I ride 112 miles, and it's just sort of my way of 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 remembering those those 112 people who didn't make it, many of whom were sitting right behind me, right around me. So that's just my my kind of personal way of of honoring those people. We heard earlier from Susan White. She was working that day as a flight attendant. We spoke with her in February when she attended a stage production in Boulder on Flight 232. And I wanted to get your reaction to something she said that night. And let's listen to what she said. I witnessed so many um, strangers, passengers helping other passengers get out. And the rescue workers just, you know, coming and doing whatever they could just to help all these strangers. It is a warm, a warm feeling to know mm-hmm. that people are genuinely, they, I think they are good people. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. And right now is a, a perfect time for a reminder of that. Mm-hmm. You were one of the strangers White referred to going back into the plane to rescue a little girl. How did you make the decision to do that? You know, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just something that happened. And I think the reason for it was that we had so much time before we hit. We had 45 minutes from the time of the explosion until we finally touched down in Sioux City. And, I, and we knew we were going to crash, and Captain Haynes told us it was going to be rough. And I think everybody thought about what that might be like when we, when we do hit the ground. And I think we convinced ourselves not to panic and, and not to flee the plane, not to help ourselves, but to help other people. I think if it would have just happened quickly, and there would have been an explosion. Then we tried to land with it, you know, right away. I think it would have been different. I think people would have thought about themselves more. But I think we all thought it through and put some game plans together, and, and those things paid off. And despite that rescue, you've had issues with survivor's guilt. How were you able to work through it? You know, for me, it was it was really difficult the first year. And then the difference for me was when I became a Christian. When I made a decision for Christ, I just realized that, uh, I would never have the answer to the question why. Why did it happen? Why was I on board? Why did all these people around me die? Why did my guy, my buddy that I was traveling with, pass away in the in 112 people? All why, why, why? And, and once I became a Christian and the peace came over me, I stopped asking those questions. I didn't completely stop asking them, but I stopped asking them so often and just realized that I would probably never have that answer but I have a God who's got a perfect plan for me, and someday I'll have those answers. And that, that took the fear away from me. Jerry, thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you having me. Jerry Schimmel is an announcer for Colorado Rockies on KOA Radio. He is a survivor of Flight 232, the United Airlines plane that crashed in Sioux City, Iowa, 30 years ago after taking off from Denver. He joined us to reflect on the passing of Al Haynes, the pilot of that flight. Up next, innovative technology, clean burning energy. It was a Colorado first, but it failed. We'll explore the legacy and lessons of Fort St. Brain nuclear power plant when Colorado Matters continues.
Governor Jared Polis has pledged to power Colorado on 100 percent renewable energy. And the state's largest utility, Excel Energy, has set a goal of providing only carbon-free power. That leaves the door open to a number of non-renewable yet carbon-free energy sources, including nuclear power. If that were to happen, it wouldn't be Colorado's first foray into atomic energy. The state once had a unique power plant with a pioneering design. 30 years ago, it was powered down for the last time. Producer Paul Caroli explains why. Colorado's first and as yet only nuclear power plant does not look like the nuclear power plant of the imagination. There's no cement dome. There are no cooling towers. It's more of a giant windowless beige building plopped down in the middle of the sprawling farmlands of rural Weld County. Um, We're walking through the visitor center at St. Brain. It is open by appointment um, all year round. Gary Witterspoon has worked at the Fort St. Vrain Generating Station since 1984. On a Friday afternoon earlier this summer, he was my guide through this small corner of Colorado's nuclear history. So this is a model of our reactor at HTGR, high temperature gas cooled reactor. There were flecks of paint missing from the faded plastic model before us. And all of the sharp edges were worn from years of curious school children and their prying fingers. It was truly a next generation, even beyond next generation kind of reactor design for its time. At the height of American enthusiasm for nuclear power in the 60s and 70s, almost every reactor was designed to be cooled with water. But Fort St. Vrain was different. It was cooled with helium. The other distinctive feature of the Fort St. Vrain reactor, that was its graphite core. The sweet thing about the graphite core is that the hotter you make it, the stronger it is. Okay? So this idea of a meltdown or losing the core or melting the core, whatever, was completely impossible in this design. And yet, the Fort St. Vrain Visitor Center and Museum does not just tell the story of a frontier-pushing technological advance. Instead, it offers insights into the real question at the core of Fort St. Vrain's high-temperature gas-cooled reactor. Oftentimes, the question gets asked, well, why didn't we continue to run? Why did it fail? Why did it fail? I've spent the past few months asking former workers what they think is the answer to that question. And the story that's emerged is one of resilience, grit, and pride in the face of enormous obstacles. It's a story of smashing atoms just north of Platteville. Yeah, at this point, you're, you're completely tied to me as a visitor until I escort you offside. When Gary and I were done in the visitor center, he walked me across the street, through the old security checkpoint, over to the plant itself. Through the front door, the flat beige facade gave way to a seemingly endless maze of pipes of all different shapes, sizes, and colors. And, uh... A power plant is kind of like the human body. It's made up of many systems, just like you have uh, a circulatory system and a nervous system and a pulmonary system, and all of those systems together combine to make the power plant work. Hundreds of contractors descended on Weld County to start building this behemoth in 1968. They got the reactor up and running for testing in 1972, And by 1976, the plant had generated its first watt of power for the grid. Technology aside, the heart of Fort St. Vrain was the people. Okay, my name's Stan Kaluski, and 
I started in 1978 and worked till 2011 when I retired. Stan came to Fort St. Vrain after a tour of duty on a nuclear-powered submarine. So you had to know a lot of stuff on a submarine. Well, we got qualified, and that was all good. And then when you hit this power plant, it was just like... Complicated. Every single person that walked through the doors at Fort St. Vrain had to be highly trained, highly capable of handling a multitude of contingencies. They were creating massive amounts of electricity by manipulating subatomic particles. And they took their jobs seriously. You know, a lot of guys have a desk work. If it's snowy, they don't need to go in. They don't have to re, re, um, relieve anybody. Not going in wasn't an option for Stan on Christmas Eve 1982. He could see a massive blizzard was rolling in, but his name was on the schedule. So Christmas 82 had my appendix out and I went up there after calling and they said, yeah, it's not too bad. So I went in and, and got caught up there with my stitches leaking. The storm was so bad that Stan had to stay at the plant for 30 hours, rotating shifts with the few other control room operators that were able to make it in. Again, not, not, no pat on the backs. It's something that was there. You just, you thought you had to get in and relieve your guy so he could go home. It was just in your part of your logic. I got to get out there and, and that's my job. A lot of the workers that I've talked to say that the pressure bred a strong sense of professionalism and camaraderie. These men and women took a lot of pride in their work and their plant. <laughs> well, in Platteville, there's a restaurant uh, called the Doubletree. Ted Borst started at Fort St. Vrain as radiation protection manager in 1980. And... When public service company built Fort St. Vrain, they added on a bar to that restaurant called the In-Between. And it was often pretty crowded with Fort St. Vrain folks. One regular at the Doubletree? Betty Inouye, nuclear documents clerk at Fort St. Vrain starting in 1981. You work hard like that. And I think especially at, at that time, it was a probably a stress reliever. But every time we got the plant up to power and stuff, we'd have a party. At any given time, there were between 500 and 600 people working out at the plant. We worked hard together. We partied hard together. Everybody socialized together. And uh, a lot of people got married out there. A lot of people got divorced out there. As the years wore on, however, there were fewer and fewer reasons to celebrate at the Doubletree. The unique helium-cooled reactor proved to be more trouble than everyone expected. Maybe there was water in the reactor or new safety tests to run. Maybe some old parts were worn and needed replacing. It was always something, and it was always expensive. So, in the mid-80s, there were several efforts by consumer groups to say, hey, Fort St. Rain isn't working, and why should the ratepayer pay for a power plant that's not working? And that's a hard one to argue with. Ted says that those arguments led the Public Utilities Commission of Colorado to take Fort St. Rain out of the rate base. That meant it would be treated like a private power plant, rather than just another plant supplying power to the grid. The idea was we ought to be able to sink or swim on our own merits. And even though the mid to late 80s were some of Fort St. Vrain's most productive years in operation, it wasn't enough. And then there was the radioactive elephant in the room. See, in the years after Three Mile Island in 1979, public opinion swung hard against nuclear power. All plans for new nuclear plants, including plants based on similar high-pressure helium-cooled designs, were scrapped. That meant that the special fuel they used at Fort St. Vrain never dropped in price. And so in, in late, the late 80s, the board of directors said, hey, we, we're not going to purchase more fuel for this plant because we're not operating well enough to justify that, so we're going to shut down. 
The reactor powered down for the last time 30 years ago this month. Some of the spent fuel was shipped to the Idaho National Engineering Lab. The rest is still on site today in a Department of Energy facility built specially for the purpose of protecting it. In a remarkable feat of engineering and ingenuity, the reactor itself was flooded and scuba divers swam inside with blowtorches to disassemble and remove it piece by piece. As for the workers themselves, many were redistributed to other plants and offices within the power company. Many more retired early or moved on to other jobs in other states. Some went on to work on the cleanup at Rocky Flats in the mid-90s. And a few stuck around to see their plant repurposed and repowered with natural gas. You're now entering the turbine building. This is uh, where the old steam turbine, our repowered steam turbine, is running. And you hear that vibration and noise. That's music to my ear as an old operator. The gas-powered Fort St. Vrain of today has the capacity to produce about three times as much power as the old nuclear reactor. But something is missing. We'll step over here, take a look into the reactor, or what was the reactor. By far the highlight of my tour of Fort St. Vrain was the old refueling floor. This is the cavernous room where Gary and his colleagues once used giant robotic arms to put fresh fuel into the reactor. All that machinery is gone now. All that's left is a massive reactor-sized hole plunging deep into the earth. Okay, from that corner you can probably see to the bottom. Holy cow. This is, I have to tell you, I didn't expect it to be this big. Um, it, it, it is. It's like 290 and a couple of feet. To the bottom. Gary and I stood at the edge for a few minutes and gazed into the shadowy depths below. The natural gas-powered turbines were spinning on the far side of the plant, and we shared a relatively quiet moment of contemplation. It's a moving sight. Regular language doesn't capture this. Do you ever think about poetry when it comes to this place? Ghosts ghosts of, of, of struggle. And in a way, it's good. Uh, it was very clean. We proved that the technology was incredibly clean. Uh, we proved that it would work, but incredibly sad at the same time, because it feels like we failed to allow this, the whole world for that matter, to step forward into a next generation kind of nuclear power. At Fort St. Vrain, I'm Paul Caroli for CPR News. Our thanks to producer Paul Caroli for exploring that unique piece of Colorado history. He looks further into Fort St. Vrain's legacy in a new local podcast called Range and Slope. It features sound and stories from prairie to peak, available at rangeandslope.com. After a break, we'll hear from Nashville country star Dirks Bentley, a native of the West whose love affair with Colorado goes back decades. As a kid growing up in Arizona, we drove the 1971 Suburban across the uh, the Four Corners several times to go to Durango and uh, to go to Purgatory, Colorado, a bunch. And um, I had been to Telluride before, and my brother has been trying to get me to come back out there ever since. And something about going back out there with the kids and the Bluegrass Festival, obviously, and just felt like a really natural place to be. I felt like home. Bentley grounded his love for the state by creating a new Labor Day weekend tradition in Buena Vista. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a cactus flower somewhere out there knows my deepest thoughts. There's a tumbleweed inside of me that's never gonna stop. There's a mountain out there somewhere I still haven't climbed. You know I love you, baby. I just need a little time. On her way to visit her boyfriend in the United States, Paola, a woman from Chile, is stopped at customs. And she never actually makes it out of the airport. At any point, is somebody explaining to you exactly what you've done wrong? Yes, I try marijuana in a place which is not legal for immigrants. That was my mistake. On the next episode of On Something Love in the Time of Legalization, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The latest album from country singer Dirks Bentley has a whole lot of Colorado on it. Ever since we touched down in Colorado I could tell something wasn't right Cause you'll look at those snow-capped mountains You won't look into my eyes Performing at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival inspired the Nashville-based country star in many ways. It led to his 2018 album, The Mountain. It even moved him to launch a Labor Day music festival, which returns for its second year this weekend in Buena Vista. Well, we've been talking about doing this uh, festival for a long time. If you're going to do a festival in Colorado, you want it to feel like you're in the Rockies, and doing it in Denver just didn't really feel like that. It's a big city, and the mountains are pretty far away. And then um, this location in Buena Vista came up, came to BV, and uh, it's just the perfect location. You know, these seven 14,000-foot mountains uh, visible from the festival site, and Great town, great people. Everyone really wanted to work with us and was really excited about having a, you know country music come into the, to the area. And again, it all goes back to me just trying to find more ways to spend more time in Colorado. My colleague Ryan Warner reached Bentley by phone last August to talk about the festival, as you just heard, and about Bentley's Colorado-inspired album. In the title track to this new album, your ninth album, The Mountain, I feel like you have written an anthem for Colorado. Well, you better know the bottom if you want to be a climber Cause there's always another one a little bit higher Just when I think I'm finally done I'm staring at another one So I reach down deep and I lace them up tighter It was only a mountain Yes. So one of my good friends is a guy named Kevin Jorgensen, who's a world-famous climber. He's done the Dawn Wall and has actually a movie out right now about it. And uh, he was giving me and another friend of mine, Blake McCoskey, who started uh, Tom's Shoes. They uh, they climbed together a bunch, and they were giving me a bunch of crap because, you know, I got this big beard, and I'm singing songs called The Mountain, and, and they're, they're laughing because I've never actually climbed a mountain. I've hiked, <laughs> uh, hiked all over. I've hiked all over the place. I love going for a good hike, but I've never actually put the gear on and climbed. So recently, I was in uh, the Tetons out in Wyoming, and I did some pretty serious climbing. So I feel like uh, the song now, I have a little, when I sing the song, The Mountain, the next show, I have a little more uh, under my belt here to actually pull that song off. It was only a mountain, nothing but a big old rock, only a mountain. Just
took a little step Right then I left Now I'm standing on the top Just shouting Indeed, the album was recorded in Colorado just outside of Telluride at Studio in the Clouds. What a great name for a mountain mountain studio. Oh, awesome studio. You met, obviously, the owner of of the studio, and and he was engaged in something uh, perhaps thoroughly Western when you saw him. Very Western. Western in a very Colorado spiritual way. But yeah, we pulled up to his his, uh, studio, which is really just a house on the Mesa up there in Telluride, and... uh, First thing I noticed was a dog looked more like a wolf was uh, guarding some sort of animal carcass. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And you come around the corner, and there he is you know, on the table saw cutting up an elk and comes over to say hi, and he's got flecks of you know, flesh all over him, and he's got these really old tools he's using. And then uh, we're like, what is this? who is this guy? This is amazing. And then we get inside later on, and he's become more of the, uh, the 420 spiritual Colorado element and wow. uh, offering all sorts of delicious uh treats for the band and crew and truly a mountain man are you high on most of the record no 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 oh, okay i'm not good at being high and, and singing no 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 i actually i i'd actually didn't sing the record in colorado i thought i was going to but then i realized you know ten thousand feet is not a really good place to get enough breath to uh, to sing so i actually <laughs> sang everything back in nashville i'm traveling like i'm laying it down all those demons I know I keep dragging round I'm cutting the ties I'm dropping the weight All my hurt and my regrets and my mistakes I'm tired of living Unforgiven So I'm traveling light this is the track Travel in Light from the new album from Dirk Bentley, The Mountain, and it features a duet with Randy Carlyle, whose voice, oh my gosh, it's so otherworldly. I, I just, oh. I could listen to that voice all day. Did you, did you meet her at <laughs> Telluride? Yeah, she played, uh, she went on after us in 2017. She was so good. I hadn't really, she hadn't been on my radar for a couple of years, and I, it's just so good. I got back to Nashville, and it was like, almost like the radio was, was telling me it was meant to be. I was listening to public radio here in town, and she came on, and she's singing her song, The Joke, and it was like her voice. You can just feel like you're in the studio, and you can just feel like you can see the, the needles going into the red. Like, her voice is so powerful. Let You know, I was able to get a number. I sent her a text, and we ended up texting back and forth a bunch. And we just went back and forth, and I, I sent her the tracks and, uh, out of the West Coast, and she's able to do her thing and, and send them back to me. And usually it's like it's verse, chorus, and then you bring someone in, they sing the, the verse, and then they sing harmonies to the other person on the chorus, right? That's usually how to do it. It works. And I was like, it'd be so cool if you just took the whole second chorus. Just take it for your own and just go for it. And uh, she did. And it's, you know, one of my favorite things on the record, just hearing her sing that second chorus so high and her voice is so piercing. It's just, uh, ah, it was just amazing. And I, the fact that she loved the song just meant the world to me. I'm traveling light, I'm light. 
right to another woman in your life, the one you're married to, actually, Cassidy Black. There's yeah. a there's a track on the new album, Dirk Bentley, The Mountain, called Women A Men. Uh, and you shot the music video in Buena Vista. You call it Buena Vista. I like that. You call it Buena. All right. Well, now, local. do you know the story behind that? <laughs> Uh, I probably heard it when I, when I was out there hanging out with the mayor, but I um, can't remember it. The town founders wanted the name to sound like the word beautiful, so they, they very oh. specifically call it Buena Vista for that reason. Okay, well, I'm from Arizona. It's just never going to happen, but <laughs> I never... know the story. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> well, you, you have the information now. Uh, in any case, you, you think that uh, your wife might think Women Amen was her favorite track on the album. In a way, it's an ode to her, uh, and yet I, I understand it's actually not her favorite track. Uh, she's been through that whole game so many times with me. I mean, there's so many times I've walked in the door and gone, I wrote this song for you, and, you know, the the girl in the song has blue eyes. My wife's like, yeah, I got brown eyes. I'm like, I know the blue eyes, you know, has a just rhymed better. And But uh, the, this song was different for sure, and, you know, and she loves that, the sentiment, and it's of all of the songs ever written for her, it's definitely the, the most direct, the most authentic, I guess would be the, the best word for it. Every night I should be on my knees, Lord knows how lucky I am. I'll never say near enough, thank God for this woman, amen. And she loved it, but she really loves the song called Burning Man, which is a, which is a single right now. We just shot the video for it. I'm a little bit steady, but still a little bit rolling stone. I'm a little bit heaven, but still a little bit flesh and bone. Little found, little don't know where I am. I'm a little bit holy water, but still a little bit burning man. Burning man. Dirk Bentley is our guest. He joins us ahead of his new music festival. Uh, in Buena Vista on Labor Day. And if you hear him breathing in the background there, it's because he's walking his dog as he speaks to us. And any dog owner would want to know whether your dog has gone. Did your dog go? I have not. These dogs are funny. They they won't really go on the walk. Um, Okay. But the good thing about it is I don't have to carry the little, like, sack around me everywhere I go. I kind of appreciate the fact they wait till they get home. Why don't we wrap up on a song called How I'm Going Out? (laughs) It it seems perfect. And I wonder... If there is, uh, maybe this is a bit too literal, is there some sense sure. that this might be about leaving Nashville and perhaps relocating to Colorado? This time of year, um, I go through this thing where we go out there and we're like, gosh, can we just make it work living here in, you know, in Telluride? Or, you know, I was actually just in Boulder for a little bit, looking at some places there and checking out some schools. And, you know, I'm not dying in Nashville. It's been a great city. I've enjoyed it good people here, but this is not my home. My home's in Arizona out west, and my best day involves being outside as much as, as possible, and that's hard to do out here because of the just the climate. But um, for me, you know, I've been here 25 years, and I, I really want to get back out there, and I would be out there already if it wasn't for, you know, kids and also just, you know, the, the commitment I feel and responsibility I feel to my um, my band that I'm able to fly as a pilot. I'm able to fly these guys everywhere, and that'd be a little harder to do that if we were based out of, you know, we're in Colorado. So, yeah, at some point I'll be out there. It's just a matter of time. But um, my manager did not want me to cut, really put the song on the record. She said, it's so depressing. I'm like, yeah, but it's so true. And that's what makes records records great is like having that weight, having that honesty, that authenticity. I think, you know, 
at some point, you know, spoiler alert, it is going to come to an end. When there's no more dreams to chase, and when it's my turn to jump off this carousel, I'm going to ride that white horse and run like hell. Be thankful for the friends I've made, the hungry years, the glory days. Give them one more song and let this guitar dance. Dirks, thanks for being with us. Honored to be on the on the on the show all across Colorado. So thank you. When it's my turn to jump off this carousel, gonna ride that. White horse and run like hell No slowing down, no looking back Let the credits roll and fade to black Give them one more song and let this guitar dance Sing them one more song and let this guitar dance That's how I'm going out Country singer Dirks Bentley speaking with Brian Warner last August. Bentley's Seven Peaks Festival returns for its second year this Labor Day weekend. It kicks off Friday and runs through Sunday in Buena Vista. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Will. This is CPR News. What happened to him? It's been a while since I heard that name. Story goes. I told one last joke, bum, one more smoke, and then. Ate my tag and just disappeared one day.